Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. We've made it. It's 150 episodes, so fade up the gasps of disbelief. For those who've managed to last the journey thus far, thank you for listening. And the number of downloads is now approaching one and a quarter million, which by itself is quite a shock. Adding to the self-serving histrionics, episode one of the series has just been made Spotify's fourth most listened to podcast in South Africa for 2023. More gasps of disbelief. When I began this enterprise in February 2021, it was a giant leap into a possible abyss, a leap into the unknown, a possible foray into catastrophe. One person's historian is another person's spin doctor, you could say. As 2024 beckons, I need to mention that my site, desmondlatham.blog, has a donation panel. The hosting services are not free, and so far I've tried to avoid mentioning Moolah, its base, and depraved. However, debasing and depraving is required at the cost of all this, which has to be covered somehow. You'll see a donate button on desmondlatham.blog. Click on there and there's a PayPal QR code on the page. Or if you'd prefer to EFT or something like that, send me an email at desmondlatham at gmail.com. That's desmondlatham at gmail.com. With that slightly odious begging bowl moment out of the way, back to our tale. We're going to hear about Dingana's death. It's late January 1840, and word has reached the Fortrekker Beers commando that Dingana has been defeated at Amakoko, and he's on the run. Although Commandant Andres Pretorius believed this was true, the Boers wanted to follow up on the Amazulu king's defeat to deal with the remnants of his army. As you know, in Tlele Kasompiti, the general had paid for the defeat with his life. Dingana had him killed, but the surviving army was still out there on the flatlands west of the Lobombo Mountains. But by throwing Ndlela's body out for the wild dogs, the jackals, the hyenas and the vultures, Dingana had broken the tradition of burying respective elders and royalty. Many of his own followers took exception to this act and realized that his behavior belied his weakness, so more decided to throw in their lot with Mpande, Ka Senzangakona. On the 3rd of February, 220 Boers detached from the Beers commander for a quick recon towards the Pongola River after being informed that Dingana's general Nongalaza was chasing Ndlela's shattered impi south. Maybe they'd catch these warriors in a pincer. There were reportedly around 3,000 still unhurt. At least 2,000 others had died or were wounded and no longer a threat. Hundreds of warriors were indeed in the vicinity, heading back towards the Mfalosi on the Pongola River. But this was summer, and summers are characterized by thick mist in the valleys. It was under cover of this mist that the warriors managed to avoid the Boers, hiding in the cliffs and the caves and inside the dense river-round bush. A small group of men and women were caught in one of these caves. The men were killed, the women were seized. Pretorius was in for a nasty surprise when he returned to his main lager that night. Some of the Boers who'd remained behind were blind drunk, his two IC Lingenfelder, had allowed liquor to be dispensed, and the men were unruly. Lingenfelder was summoned to appear before the Kreisrat, the war council, where he was reprimanded for selling alcohol to the men, and all alcohol was banned. After that, 250 burghers mounted up in a larger commander and headed northeast from the White Mfalosi to the Pongola River to join up with Nongalaza's Amazulu. Our source, Adolphe Delgorge, the French hunter and explorer, was still riding with the Boers, 
and was unimpressed by this commando, as it sloughed up the hills in a somewhat disorderly manner, the Boers' powerful muskets swinging from their shoulders. But looks can be deceiving, you know. It was raining, the mist slowed down the Boers, and then they bumped into small groups of Dingana's troops. These minor skirmishes didn't amount to much, frustrating Pretorius's men. They continued riding into the low felt, and into big trouble. This was Tsetsifly and malaria country, avoided by the Amazulu who tried to remain on the higher ground. They met up with Nongolaza on the 5th of February, who told them that Dingana had made it across the Bogolo River, and was fleeing into Amaswazi country with a few close adherents and his mother and some sisters. He was heading towards the Lubombo Mountains. Anyone who has travelled here will know of the Ghost Mountain, the combination of blunt hills and thick subtropical bush, the sandy trails, and possibly ghostly stories. There's a reason for that. Soshangani of the Ndwanwe had lived close to this mountain until he was defeated by Shaka in about 1819, and then fled to Delagoa Bay, founding the Shangan people. The mountain's real name is Chanini, and it had been used for generations to bury the kings of the Ndwanwe and previous people of the region, the Gaza. There are caves on this mountain, and the main cave is taboo out of bounds, and this cave was where Soshangani was buried after he died near Delagoa Bay. His body was covered in black bull skins and smuggled back through the area to be buried in the ancestral cave. Much later, General Louis Boerter and Amazulu were going to fight a major battle here, but that would only take place after 1879. And so Nongalaza's men were hurrying after Dingana as he crashed through the bush with his remaining Isigodlo and close family, along with his personal bodyguard, Kokoti Amabuto, and the young men of the Isitoya Toya Regiment. But his mother, Mpikasi, was old. She was slowing the king down, and what you could call final proof of the Amazulu king's total and despicable actions, he abandoned Mpikasi to her fate. He left her behind. Nongalaza's men caught up with her and dragged her back to Mpandi and the Boers, as you'll hear. After just over 40 kilometers of chasing, Nongalaza's men gave up. The fugitive ex-king was on the run. He had lost his power but he was now using the playbook of the other chiefs who fled the Amazulu extravagances over the preceding 15 years, including Mzilikazi of the Ama Ndebele and Sashangani himself. They had also fled after defeat. Perhaps he could reach some territory where he could begin to rebuild some sort of base. When he realized that Nongolaza's men had turned around, he stopped with his retinue at a small hill south of the Lubombo Mountains called Latikuru. Looking at the map, this is east of where the Pongola Port Dam is today, inside the pristine Tlatikulu forest between Nguavuma and the Pongola Gorge. Geologically, the range here is considered part of a rifted volcanic margin, a monocline as they call it, and interestingly was also aligned with the Explorer Escarpment Offshore Donning Maud Land in the Antarctic before the breakup of Gondwana. The mountains are arranged north to south, dipping to the east, composed of a sequence of Jurassic-age volcanic rocks, basaltic lava, and what's known as rhyolitic flows, resting on Karoo's supergroup sedimentary rocks. The alternating rhyolite being much harder than the basalts, they've produced this series of parallel sharp ridges separated by savanna plains. Lubombo is derived from the Zulu word for an elephant's trunk. I spent a lot of time here in my youth at a place called Cape Vidal, north of St. Lucia, just south of Mozambique. Today the area is part of the Lubombo Transfrontier Conservation and Resource, which combines four distinct transfrontier conservation areas between Mozambique, South Africa, and the Kingdom of Eswatini, 
covering a total area of over 10,000 kilometers square. 20 of the 88 mammals found in this area are found nowhere else, as well as the Cape buffalo, rowan antelope, and a threatened species of leopard. Flora discoveries include the Bilaria species and a strange place called the Jalobi Forest, one of the last pristine forests in this territory. Other flora include the stunning Lobombo ironwoods and cycads. Peering at these mountains in February 1840 was Dingana, who took stock as he settled in a makeshift royal residence on the forested slopes. His Izugodla was put in place and he renamed this Isankoleni, a place of seclusion, the secluded spot. This was his last place, and instead of seclusion, it was going to be a place of execution. He'd set up his great place in the territory of an Anduna called Silivana. He paid tribute to the local chief Sambani in Lovalu, a man of royal blood who was heir to the Abakwa Nyao. These people lived on the western slopes, the more gentle slopes, if you like, of the Lobombo range. The main regent who controlled all of this territory was King Mswati II, the youngster who just defeated Dingana the previous year. Mswati wanted Dingana dead, all the more so because he was negotiating with the Boers and they had already sent messages to him to ask the Amaswazi to track down their enemy. Silivana, though, was in some trouble. Dingana was surrounded by two sets of Amabuto, a small company, if you like, but still Amazulu, trained to fight, ready to defend their king. And these invaders soon made a nuisance of themselves, eating Silivana's food and swanning about as if they owned the place. Dingana was missing some of the accoutrements left back at Mgungunlovu, so he sent his warriors from the Ukukoti regiment back south to search for his furniture and other goods in early March, his bric-a-brac of power, if you like. Remaining behind were the Izi Toya Toi unit, not the best group to have around when your assassins are prowling. Just a sidebar here, Toi Toi, as most South Africans know, was used with chants such as a Amantlana Wetu during protests against the apartheid-era police. It's still used. It's a street protest dance where men and women leap from one leg to the other, a rhythmic movement designed to generate emotions, to increase courage in the face of possible violence. Political parties across the spectrum have tried to seize control of the ubiquitous toy toy with the anti-privatization forum selling a CD, which is basically a compilation of music specially designed for toy toying. Some lexicologists say toy toy is not from southern Africa, it's actually from Algeria and is an Arabic word. Strange, but perhaps true. I've done a bit of toy-toy research, and the story is one, I'm afraid, of cultural appropriation. At least, that's according to Jocelyn Alexander and Joanne McGregor of the University of Oxford and Sussex, respectively. They published a paper in 2019 called The Travelling Toy-Toy, Soldiers and the Politics of Drill. According to these academics, the first people to use the toy-toy as a revolutionary military dance were Zimbabwean Zipra fighters, you say that the origin lay in the revolutionary solidarity offered by the newly independent Algeria in the 60s. Its conduit into southern Africa's liberation movements was through the military instruction offered by the Algerian FLN, or Front de Liberation Nationale, in the mid-1960s. The FLN guerrillas were fitness fanatics, say Zipra vets, and the dance was based on running in the high-knee toy-toy, a reflection of the FLN's own experience of brutal guerrilla war in harsh terrain. To toy-toy was thus associated with the harsh physical demands of survival in war and given authority through its association with veterans turned instructors. Others called it the way of running, toy-toy's morale-raising capacity, the toy-toy a bodily vehicle for rhythm and sound. Some vets, after being chased around by Algerian and then Egyptian instructors, 
thought toy toy meant run run in Arabic, but in Arabic run run is arkud arkud, so the toy toy plot thickens. Meanwhile, back to our story. The Izzy Toy Toy Regiment, just to add a kind of warped Ripley's Believe It or Not to this tale, were going to be implicated in the coming murder of Dingana. There was also devious activity going on in these final days because some of Dingana's and Dunas had decided to switch sides. They ordered the remaining warriors, except for a handful of the Izzy Toy Toy, to head off to keep an eye on the enemy. Then these Indunas sent word to Sidivana that Dingana was no longer well protected. He in turn sent a messenger to a Swazi patrol that this was the moment to strike their hated enemy. Then these Indunas sent word to Silvana that Dingana was no longer well protected. So Silvana sent a message to a Swazi patrol that this was the moment to strike their hated enemy. In charge of this Swazi unit was a highly respected and effective warrior called Sonizani Tamini. He joined forces with the Nyao chief and that night they surrounded Isankweleni. As John Labant, the historian, notes, some of the inhabitants smelt birds later in the early morning, not realizing this was the smell of the Amaswazi feathered headdress, their black widow bird get-up. Inside the Izigodlo, the recently deposed Amazulu king slept on, protected by his dogs, including his trusted dog, Makwetlana, old and fat now, but still large and unpredictable. These dogs ran out of the hut, and Makwetlana's days were suddenly over. One of the Swazi warriors speared him to death. Then Dingana emerged, walking with his stabbing spear in his hand. Damaswazi and Nyawa warriors unleashed a volley of spears, hitting Dingana, wounding him. He turned to the assailants and apparently lowered his eyes and growled, Mfokuzana, you little runt, are you stabbing me with a spear? With that, he ran into the bush, chased by the warriors, while half a dozen of his VIP guard including his Ngneku Makanda, tried to fight them off. Damaswazi Nanyawu turned on the women, slaughtering them, including his sister, Nozulwani, but a number of other women escaped. They would end up in a new Izigodlo, run by Mpande. As the Isitoyetoy ran up, Damaswazi melted away. They thought their job was done. Dingana, meanwhile, was lying in the bush, seriously injured. The spear had hit him in the stomach. I've read through some of the historical accounts of what took place here. There's a lot of disinformation. So as usual, I'm going to repeat the various stories, which themselves are partly allegorical, if you like. The Boers said later that Dingana had actually been tortured to death, slashed a thousand times with spears, then dogs bit him, then he was blinded, then he was starved to death. None of the original tales mention this. This story is almost mythological, or perhaps pathological, the trekkers hated Dingana so viscerally they dreamed up the worst punishment possible. James Stewart Archive interviews with Nduna and descendants of the men who fought with Dingana suggested he died of a broken heart wandering around the Labombo Mountains. That version too is probably his supporters indulging in symbolism, pointing to Mpande's betrayal. Again, this version is not regarded as accurate. Then another story has it that he was only wounded in the arm and took poison Again, unlikely, according to most sources. The final version is that the Izitoyotoyu said they carried Dingana back to Isankoleni, where they realized that the spear had caused a fatal wound. So they enlarged the hole with their spears, so he bled to death quickly, rather than suffer for hours. It is this version that is believed to be the likely fate of Dingana. Later, Zulu journalist and historian Magema Fuse was to weigh in on these various stories. Fuse was born in 1840 and was raised from the age of 12 by the first bishop of Natal, John Colenso, 
who converted him to Christianity and baptized him in 1859, giving him the Zulu name Magema. He too should feel the spear as he made his great brother Shaka feel it, Fuse wrote in his fantastic work, Abantu Abamanyam Lapabavelangakona, the black people and whence they came, who agreed that the Izitoyotoyi finished off their king in a moment of compassion. The same Amabuto dug a grave for their king in his last great place, Isankoleni, and then left for Zululand. Later, the Nyawa people found Dingana's burial spot, covered in rocks in the Amazulu tradition. They left it there, left it to become overgrown. And from then on, until 1983, the site remained a secret known only to members of the Nyawa royal clan. Then King Goodwill Zvelatini travelled to Isankoleni in 1983, and unveiled a monument to Dingona. Back with the Beers Commando in 1840, these 250 men, who were still riding northeast, but things were becoming more difficult. Ten of their horses died, bitten by the tsetse fly. The oxen were starting to die as well. They were unaware of Dingona's fate, and eventually reached the Pongola River on the 8th of February. The constant rain and humid conditions, along with the illnesses, prompted Pretorius to return to their camp along the Imphalosi River but they managed to seize thousands of head of cattle, by all accounts around 10,000. They were still seeking revenge, and despite Pretorius's order, his two IC Lingenfelder had continued to sell those who remained behind copious amounts of alcohol. Two men, named as Buta and Gideon van der Skeef, had had a fight while swimming, drunk, in the Imphalosi River. Buta held van der Skeef's head under the water and almost drowned him. Van der Skeef ran back to the camp, grabbed his musket. Buerta realized he was in danger and hid, and when van der Skeef arrived back, he was so angry that he just shot dead a young Khoisan boy traveling with the Boers. Pretorius arrived the next day and had van der Skeef arrested and brought before the Krijgsraad, and promptly found him guilty of murder. The Landros back in Pietermaritzburg would deal with you, said Pretorius, who then seized Lingenfelder's dop, his caskets of wine and brandy. Lingenfelder, meanwhile, threatened to blacken Pretorius's name, a somewhat ironic threat, I think you'd agree. Commandant Pretorius set up a meeting with Mpande on the morning of the 10th of February at the Beers Commando on the southern bank of the Black Omphalosi. Pretorius said he spoke under the authority of the Republic Natalia, and he proclaimed Mpande King of the Zulus. Then Pretorius dropped a bit of a shocker. He said that Mpande was king not because he was of royal lineage, but because the Boers wanted him as king. It was thanks entirely, said Pretorius, to the hands of God that Dingana had been killed and Mpande now ruled. Nongalaza's victory over Ndlela, the death of thousands of warriors and Amazulu versus Amazulu act, was ignored. Delgorge must have had trouble keeping his jaw from hitting the floor. Mpande, on the other hand, remained calm, and of course he was surrounded by Boers, so he merely said that this news filled him with joy from his head to his heels. Or words to that effect. Pretorius, though, wasn't done. As Dingana and his senior Indunas had predicted, the Boers were actually after Zululand, not just Natal. Pretorius announced on the morning of the 14th of February, as he raised the flag of the Republic Natalia, that the Trekkers were going to annex all the land between the Drakensberg Mountains and the Indian Ocean. Pretorius said this included all the land between the Imzumvubu River, south of Port Natal, all the way to the Black Mfalosi, where they now stood, and it included St. Lucia Bay. Almost half of Mpande's kingdom was going to be gobbled up. The Boers fired a 21-gun salute. As they did so, Mpande clearly had had enough. He turned to Pretorius and gruffly said he was tired of hearing gunshots. 
and made his way back to his camp. The French explorer Delgorge wrote that this was a most unjust annexation, and foolish even. The Boers didn't have enough followers to move onto this land, let alone try and protect it. However, this moment is significant because it confirmed the Amazulu suspicions about trek Boers and their hunger for land. With that, Pretorius and his men turned south, seizing more cattle as they marched. Eventually, the herd numbered at least 31,000. Some said it was more like 40,000. In a show of magnanimity, they gave Mpande 15,000 head, a vast treasure trove itself. The Boers, on the other hand, inscribed the date of the proclamation of the annexation of this huge territory onto two stones, setting one up on the bank of the Black Umfalozi and burying the other. It was during one of the stops home that Dongolaza handed over Dingana's mother, Mpakasi, who told the Boers that her son was last seen heading northeast towards the Lubombo Mountains. Eventually, the Beers commander returned to Peter Maritzburg and the cattle were shared out. Every man received at least 20 head, the leaders taking the lion's share. And what of Van der Skeef, the man who'd shot a coy child out of frustration? Well, you'll no doubt be unsurprised to hear that the Peter Maritzburg Volksrat released him immediately and said he was free to sell liquor wherever he wanted because it happened outside territory over which the foretrickers had no jurisdiction. Not even a slap on the wrist for a cold-blooded shooting of a boy who was technically on their side. The other Koi and Achtereyers took note of this casual attitude to their lives. It was only in April that news of Dingana's death reached the Boers in Maritzburg. At first they didn't believe it. Then Carolus Trichart, Louis Trichart's son, confirmed it. When rumours began circulating in Delago Bay that Dingana was on his way to attack Trichard was hired by the Portuguese governor there to sail up the Maputo River to investigate. The Amazulu king's assassination was finally confirmed by the Amaswazi, and Trichard headed back to Port Natal with the news. All of these goings-ons had not escaped the attention of the officials of the British Empire. Mpande, who had been insulted in various ways by Pretorius, was not a beginner in this diplomatic game. He had been eyeing the British as possible allies, and knew exactly how to play the empire officials, which strings to tug, which narrative to pursue. The British, as you will hear next episode, did not need much convincing when it came to matters about the Boers. You can head off to the website desmondlatham.blog where I'll load an update about this episode. You can uh, email me from there or direct message me on x at deslatham. Until next, salagatli. 